As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Great guest in the studio with us, yeah. Julian Emanuel of Evercore. Julian, good to see you. Good morning, mate. Good morning. Let's start here. This week, NVIDIA. Then we've got Chairman Powell throwing China into the mix as well. If you're coming back from the beach, dazed and confused, and you had to pick one right now, what should you be focused on? Sorry, there is no pick one here. All of them matter. And to us, that is a large part of why we've <coughs> seen the market drift gently lower, people taking risk off. Um, it, this is not an end of bull market run. This is just a, a, a correction, normal, seasonal. Again, uh, I, I would say what's really important is less what we're going to hear from NVIDIA, less what we're going to hear from Chair Powell, less what we hear. And overnight, we obviously had uh, some moves uh, from China and more the price action in response to all of these things. And frankly, it's an open question as to what we're going to see mm -hmm. in terms of the price action. What everybody wants to know is the dovetail Julian Emanuel's equity work in with Ed Hyman's economics. Ed has been out front believing in the disinflationary trend. Does he still have that in place? And how do you dovetail that into an equity call? A absolutely. Absolutely. Ed, you know, continues to think that inflation is going to come down much more rapidly uh, than people uh, believe. And, of course, part of that is we're likely to have a very mild downturn uh, early next year. But when you pull back and you, and you think about the implications for investing, there are actually three lessons from the 90s that we need to learn here. Number one, we understand the, the run-up uh, into technology with AI, et cetera, et cetera. We think that's real. But the other thing there is that there is a time, such as we saw in the 90s, where markets do pull back. But the more important thing, because we've been talking about yields uh, already this morning, is that you were able to make money in stocks in the 90s when yields were 5 and 6%. And the same really? thing is going to happen in the next 24 months. Yeah, and that's what we were talking about with Ed Yardeni uh, last week, which is we've seen this movie before and it's fine. When we talk about China is there any silver lining in the disinflation that we see over there kind of creating more disinflation in the U.S., in Europe? Or do you not buy that, what some people are putting out there? Well, Chair Powell would love to be able to think that. I don't think he's going to discuss that on Friday. It's very marginal. If you look back at, at the episodes where China weakened incrementally, they had a volatility-inducing effect in the U.S., 
very temporary. As we know, the U.S. is very much its own engine. We've seen some divergence. Do you sense that divergence can continue between what's developing here in the United States and what's developing in China? So that there is a point to which it, it cannot, okay, which is why, again, what's so important is exactly are we going to have a whatever-it-takes moment in China or, conversely, if we have what the market perceives to be a whatever-it-takes moment, is it going to be that famed Greenspan phrase, pushing on a string? It's an open question. I look at the equity market. I want to go back to what Yardani, Lisa brought up the brilliant interview they did with Yardani last week. And what Ed feels and what we all lived in 94. 94 had almost a malaise in it. And then boom, 95 moonshot. Can you call here a second leg of a bull market at some point out there, given the emotion, the malaise we're in right now? We think it lies ahead. We think you have to go through, and again, this is another lesson of the 90s, right, is that the, the technological revolution that we think we're undergoing right now with generative AI, it didn't uh, negate the idea of a recession. It postponed it, and I think that's part of the narrative. We are going to have a recession at some point. Business cycles are not canceled. Uh, from things like this. So where are you looking to really see the ramifications of a new higher rate world? You were talking about how we've seen 5% yields before and stocks keep rallying, but some areas fell out of bed. Are you looking for there to be similar carnage in small pockets that cannot survive at rates that are high, as high as they are after growing up during an era of zero rates? Well, profitless tech that's going to have to refinance over the next several years will certainly be under stress. Uh, but think about it. In an environment where rates are high, inflation is still high, and economic growth, I mean, GDP now is pushing 6% this quarter. That's an unfathomable <clears throat> number. That's where value, largely forgotten, energy and healthcare looks interesting to us. And if you're a hedger, the fact that interest rates are over right. 5% is very, very good math for options and hedging and, strategies. And Hyman has no clients who are under 70 years old. We all know that. But for the Ute of Evercore <laughs> ISI, like yourself, how do you and Hyman and the rest, how do you explain to people that have never enjoyed high interest rates, a legitimate uh, a real yield, a legitimate risk-free rate, how do you explain to them that we didn't all die and roll over in the 90s? So, so what's fascinating <clears throat> about it is, <clears throat> if you remember, for much of the post-financial crisis world, there was an angst every time the market started rallying and there was a feeling like it was going to run away. Why? Because you couldn't make anything on your cash. Okay. This time, people are like, okay. I'm good. I'm still getting 5% on my cash, which actually, if you think about it, is the thing that feeds the longevity, multi-year longevity of a bull market. The demo goes beyond the 70-plus demo, doesn't it, for research over at Evercore? Julian, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? I'll tell you what. Given the work that we've done on generative AI, to have the 20s and the 30s people and interact, we've got it, we've got it all covered. You tell him, Julian. Always watching is Amanda Lynham, who was brilliant the last time she was on. She's had a macro credit research. This is without question our fixed income interview of the day. Amanda, thank you so much. I want to go to the nitty-gritty of what you do. You have debt that is fixed, fixed coupon, dynamics, 
floating, like John's really familiar with in Europe and England, which is where the yield floats around given the movement. And then you've got CRE, commercial real estate, and all the tobacco there. How unstable or potentially unstable is a fixed income world right now? Good morning. Thank you all for having me. I think they're all impacted by this higher cost of capital environment that we're expecting. And Lisa, you alluded at the start of the program, is this the new normal? And I think the, the key difference between what you highlighted, Tom, is that for the fixed income, um, fixed rate part of the market, they're getting impacted on a different timeline than the flow floating rate part of the market. And in that floating rate part of the market, specifically the broadly syndicated leverage loan market, you are seeing an uptick in defaults. And this is something that's been happening for the past few months. But the magnitude of the of the pace of leverage loan defaults outpacing the fixed rate high yield bond space has been notable. It's the widest margin since the Moody's data began in 1996. We see scope for that to continue, even though it is unusual. And that's because we are expecting this higher for longer cost of capital environment. The other two things I would point to is that the fixed rate investment grade universe is much better positioned to manage through that higher cost of capital environment because they just have more optionality in terms of refinancing. So we don't always rely on ratings as a barometer for performance. But I think in this instance, being investment grade, having the ability to replace maturities at a later date instead of refinance them is going to be helpful. And then on the point on CRE, Tom, I think really nothing in the news flow over the past few weeks has changed our view that we're in the early stages of the distress cycle in CRE. And I think, in fact, the news flow recently has reinforced that view. And I, and, and it's okay. it's it's a combination of refinancing. That was uplifting. <laughs> Save us, John. High yield spread still <laughs> super tight in yep. the tights of the year. Yep. And this is happening even with a higher for longer conversation around the Federal Reserve. You know where that maturity wall is. So walk us through it. Why are spreads this tight when we face the risk of that maturity wall kicking in right. later next year? Right. So so two things. One, as it relates to the timing of the refinancing, the maturity wall we know begins in 2025. High-yield corporates will want to address that 12 months or more beforehand so that the debt doesn't become current. That has implications for the audit. Um, so we still have some time. And as we've noted, high-yield corporates in particular have the luxury of being patient because they've been so proactive about liquidity raising in 2020 and 2021. And it was not unusual during that kind of period right after COVID, the onset of it, where corporates were pre-funding three, four years in advance. So we've got some time. Um, the second point that I would note on the spreads, and this is a, a conversation we've been having more with clients, there's this relative value tug of war happening in the credit market where spreads in isolation are quite tight. But for yield-based buyers, the elevated risk-free rate, which has intensified most recently, as you've all been discussing, is giving them some cushion to deploy capital at still relatively attractive all in yields from a historical perspective. And so, ironically, even though spreads are, are quite snug, um, the, the overall value that's provided by corporate credit, because it's boosted by the risk-free rate, has insulated that to some degree. How transformed is high yield uh, as an asset class? Yeah. Because in some ways, it's the new investment grade, and private credit is the new high yield. We're looking at an entire uh, spectrum of lending below the covers that's taking over and buffering 
covering some of the financial pain that we would otherwise might be seeing in some of the high yield names. That's right. So so the high yield universe in particular has had much more overlap in recent years with the investment grade landscape because there's been this fallen angel rising star dynamic um, that has really intensified. So you've seen names move, I think, a little more seamlessly than we would have guessed in 2018 and 2019 between the two markets. And the high yield market has shown its ability to absorb those capital structures. There have also been some really meaningful shifts in sector composition, the high yield market serving a larger and larger borrower, um, you know, changes in, in maturity and duration and sector skews. Energy is not as problematic in this cycle as it has been in the past. Those are all those are all probably contributing to this tight spread environment in high yield. And, and private credit, we have a very <coughs> favorable view of it as an asset class, specifically in an environment like this where you can introduce some granularity and some selectivity to deploying. But to your point, the $1.5 trillion asset class is, is a relatively post-financial crisis phenomenon. And so it makes things like we've looked at in prior cycles, like the senior loan officer survey, perhaps um, less directionally correlated into the broader state of the market because you now have this asset class that's allowing corporates to diversify their funding away from the banking channel that wasn't in place to as much of a degree pre-financial crisis. And so when you think about bank lending contraction and that automatically leading to a recession, Session, that may not be the case as as much directly this time around because you've got this other source of, of funding. Um, but as it relates to private credit, I think if you're in an environment where you really need to be granular about companies' ability to absorb higher costs, manage through a higher cost of capital environment, you want to be more selective and granular. And I think parts of private credit, specifically senior direct lending, allow you to do that in a higher cost of capital environment. A clinic, as always, Amanda, just wonderfully. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Joining us right now on China, the definitive conversation of the day, William Lee joins us with all of his work at the International Monetary Fund, chief economist at Milken Institute. Anybody that watches surveillance knows he is beyond prescient. I want you to pull back the curtain, Dr. Lee, right now, particularly on the three cities. What's the level of sweat? What's the level of panic in Beijing? It is huge, John. And uh, Tom, and when you were asking who's the policymaker in, in China, it, when you talk about state capitalism, there's only one policymaker, that's Xi Jinping. And when you have one policymaker who's interested in not only preserving the economy, but also preserving his own position and consolidating power, uh, there's only one set of solutions, which is you got to 
get the private sector under control. And that, unfortunately, is their Achilles heel because right now, to restore the Chinese economy, to get youth unemployment down, to get growth going again, you need the private sector. But who in the private sector is going to trust the policies of the CCP? What is the importance of the dry up of investment from America, investment from the Western world. Within all the great work I've seen, Dr. Lee, the number one thing I'm focused on is we've lost our trust with investment in China. How important is that? Oh, that, that is absolutely critical. Uh, the discussion at most of the meetings here at Milken among our sponsors, who are some of the biggest investors in the world, uh, they are all, all asking, how do we do due diligence in China when the information is controlled by the policymaker, the policymaker, Xi Jinping? Uh, private sources of information where that they normally relied on to do due diligence, even on the company level, are now restricted. So when you restrict information flow and when you direct uh, common prosperity themes that so essentially say to people, you can, you can be successful, but not too successful, and certainly not too powerful. Those are the kind of uh, vulnerabilities and risks that Western investors are now facing. And they're asking the question, do we really need to go to China? Are there other places to go? Which raises a question, is Xi Jinping and his party not stimulating <clears throat> the economy as much as people expected because they don't want to or because they can't? Well, Lisa, as you know, I, I've come on so many times talking about the fiscal policy tools they have. The fiscal space they have, the, the degree to which they can increase fiscal spending depends on a lot of the health of the local governments. And local governments are now so indebted, they can't sell more land to finance more infrastructure spending, which has been their main fiscal tool. Uh, and so right now, they, I think they're pretty constrained. And when 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 the renminbi is, is dropping like a rock, it's very hard for the central bank to be dropping interest rates. Uh, and so we have these five, 10 basis point moves that, I mean, this is truly a situation where monetary policy is pushing on a string. When everyone has lost confidence that the private sector can can, can be is survivable, um, we, we are asking them to go borrow money at even, you know, five or 10 basis points. That's not going to make any difference at all. When I talk with different investors, some of them say maybe this is actually a positive fit thing for the rest of the economy globally because this will import disinflation to the rest of the world. Do you by this argument? I think it's positive for the rest of the economy because Xi Jinping's plan is to make China into a domestic economy and high value added production. That means low value added production is moving out to the rest of Asia and other other locations. And that's where I think the capital flows are are helping the rest of the world. Uh, but in terms of, of the Chinese economy, it's going to be a, a real, real hat trick to be able to <clears throat> revive the private sector, redirect innovation in the direction of these high tech uh, and, and high value added industries and to pull that off successfully right now with such low credibility. So what is the to-do list for Beijing? Do they use the formulas that have been proven beyond Mao? Do they, as the consensus is, stay with Mao formulas that didn't work? What's their, almost their math here on a day-to-day -day basis? What, what do you expect to see, Dr. Lee? They, they need to make structural policy into counter-cyclical policy. For example, if they put in a social safety net, that would immediately cut out the need for private sector. Bill, Bill, Bill I, I'm going to interrupt you there. We've looked for a social safety net since you and I were in our ute. You were back at the IMF running into me in a hallway. There's no social safety net. There's no dominant consumer. It's the same old, same old for Beijing. Do they stay with that script or can they actually do something? 
if they don't change the script, then you're going to have these rising inequalities generate social unrest, and that's the last thing they are able to tolerate. So, so yes, you and I have talked about social safety. When I was mission chief at Singapore, I suggested social safety net for Singapore, and then two years later, they actually put one in. So, so maybe if we talk about it long enough, and they'll realize that it's either social safety net and allow people to feel safe and they don't need to save as much for themselves, which means they consume more, or you get social unrest. And if those are the trade-offs, I think Xi Jinping will go towards safety nets. This is why that youth unemployment number is just so important at the moment. Bill, thank you, sir. Bill Lee there of the Milken Institute. Wendy Schiller of Brown University joins us right now. Wendy, wonderful to start a political coverage this week with you going into that debate on Wednesday. What is the argument for the former president showing up with polls like this one? Well, I mean, you know, it's a Rose Garden strategy as an incumbent, quote unquote, in the Republican Party. So it's hard to argue he should show up with such a big lead. But you don't want to, you know, not be there to volley off your uh, criticisms. And presuming Chris Christie is going to show up ready to fight and sort of make the argument that Trump uh, is not the guy, then, you know, that's just criticisms that can stick. Um, The other question is, will any of the other candidates actually criticize Donald Trump on that stage? It's like criticizing a ghost. Remember, you know, Clint Eastwood's sort of stunt in 2012 for the Republicans at the convention with an empty chair. That didn't work very well. So I think Trump knows that. He knows television. He knows uh, how things resonate. And he figures it's much harder to attack him if he's not physically there. Wendy, a pregnant question, if I may, into this debate and the start of the political season. William Jennings Bryan, there's a lot of parallels here, and it was gold and silver, 1896 and all that. But the answer is, after William Jennings Bryan, the Republican Party retook the high ground, the East Coast business-oriented agricultural party, if you uh, will. What happens after Trump? I mean, with this dominance that he has, what's the next? Well, I mean, I think that there are people waiting in the wings. Uh, I think like Tim Scott, for example, from South Carolina, is trying to craft a message that builds on this evangelical base, that builds on the sort of conservative voters, uh, particularly in the South, that seem to really love Donald Trump. So I think there are people who can then take the mantle. We've also got uh, Chris Nunu of New Hampshire. We've got Brian Kemp of Georgia that I'm keeping a, an eye on for 2028 if Trump doesn't, you know, he can't run again, presumably, if the Constitution holds, um, so if he wins. But 2028, you've got some Republicans now that are in line, that are lining up, and they seem, frankly, more compelling in a lot of ways than the current lineup of challengers to Donald Trump. Which raises a question of who really is the number two if Ron DeSantis is increasingly getting pushed out. Over the weekend, he made this oblique reference to Trump followers as listless vessels, and it's sort of getting compared to the whole concept of deplorables. Is it looking more and more likely that he is not really the number two is not one of the main contenders when we actually had to get closer to the actual uh, presidential election. Well, I think Ron DeSantis has the most to gain and the most to lose from Wednesday's debate. You know, can he get out there and, you know, project a coherent message for the Republican Party saying, I'm the future. You know, Trump's the past. I'm the future. I can win. I know what I'm doing. I'm quite popular in Florida. Can he actually make that argument? If he does it well, then I think he, you know, keeps his post as the second in line. But if he doesn't, and someone like Tim Scott emerges as an attractive candidate, you might even see Donald Trump offer Tim Scott the vice presidency in a month. I mean, 
you know, Donald Trump doesn't play by the traditional nominated rules, right? So, and that's a tough ticket. That is a very tough ticket. Wendy, this field is already deep, and yet already we're asking, who's next? Who's going to join them? There was a report over the weekend that maybe Mr Murdoch had a conversation with a certain Glenn Youngkin. Wendy, what's the prospect of that governor getting into this race? I just, you know, Glenn Youngkin is a perfectly reasonable politician who won against, you know, a person who had been governor already, who wasn't super popular in Virginia, kind of a little bit of a fluke. Um, and he's also made parental rights one of his big uh, messaging. And you can see it's starting to backfire a little bit on DeSantis because people are focused on the economy. So what has Youngkin done for the economy in Virginia? I just don't see on a charisma right. level um, that he can go anywhere close to toe with Trump. Well, to the other side... What should be the to-do list for the president and the people surrounding the president? Basically, what I see is silence. What should they be doing? I do think that uh, President Biden emphasizing the economy and understanding that the election is, what, 14 months away? That's a long time. We can all go back to George Herbert Walker Bush. who was pretty popular in 1991 and then lost in 92 for all sorts of reasons. So I, I think that's one thing, the long view. But the second is he's got to engage. He's got to engage Trump. He's got to remind people what life was like under Trump and the chaos that ensued. And he's got to appeal to independent voters today, now, going forward, not just the party base, but independent voters as well, and just hammer home and engage and not ignore. I don't think you win when somebody's out there getting a lot of press, a um, very well-known person who has a loyal base. You've got to go after them, just like the people in the Republican Party have to go after them. Do you think that Kamala Harris has solidified herself enough to really gain the traction in perhaps a younger way that many people said was necessary to give Biden's campaign a little bit more traction? It's a very complicated situation with Kamala Harris. African-American voters are loyal, and a huge supermajority of African-American voters um, vote for the Democratic Party. They also are key in places like Georgia and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan to uh, winning the presidency of the Democratic Party. So I can't see Biden making a change, per se, unless it was to a, another African-American politician like, let's say, Raphael Warnock. You know, do you trade the Senate? for perhaps, you know, a guaranteed victory in Georgia and then find something else for Kamala Harris to do. That's a tough proposition. And remember, the House has to approve another vice president. You know, she can't step down because Kevin McCarthy won't approve another vice president. He's third in line to the presidency. So uh, it gets very complicated in an age where the typical norms, you know, don't apply. Hey, Wendy, thank you. Good start to the week. Our political coverage continuing, going into that first debate on Wednesday. Wendy Schiller there of Brown University. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha 
for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.